0: Shall we pray? Our Father, we pray that this evening, as we come around your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher, cause us to hear what you have to say to us tonight, that we would understand what happened all those years ago, as you turned your back on your own son, that we, who should have died in his place, would never see the back of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 760 BC, 760 years before Christ, the prophet Amos wrote these words. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. 760 years before the Lord Jesus, the prophet Amos wrote these words, that on Passover, our God would make the sun dark at noon. Today is Good Friday, and churches all around Singapore and all around the world are thinking, meditating on the death of the Lord Jesus. They spend their time going over the events, of what we've just read together and what it means. And sometimes it's possible for us as Christians to look at Jesus Christ on the cross, kind of like this painting that is up here. This is a painting by the Spanish painter Salvador Dali entitled Corpus Hypercubus. And in this painting, you see Jesus suspended on a series of cubes, a tesseract cube And he is not nailed to that cross. He's hung there, suspended, in in a kind of artful, graceful manner. There are no rusty nails. There is no blood. And he's almost just gently stretching on the cross. This is a terrible way to think of Good Friday. Because Good Friday for us is good because of the forgiveness of our sins. But that only was achieved because it was terrible for Jesus. Friends, Good Friday is the darkest day in all the world. And tonight, as we look on these events, we want to look at the passion of Jesus Christ, the sufferings that he took for us. What darkness covered the land at noon? Why did it cover the land for three hours? And what does it mean? And today, as we leave leave this hall, what does it mean for us? Verse 44, which is where our passage begins tonight, says that it was about the sixth hour, which in the the manner of counting time was noon. And the, the text says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. All the service long thus far, we've been reading of the events of that day from the night before, from Thursday night on to Friday. We read about how Jesus met with his friends in, at the upper room and how he prayed the hardest prayer that he ever had to pray in Gethsemane, in that garden. And he told his father that if it was possible to let that cup, that cup that symbolized the coming cross, let it, let it pass from him It was the most stressful thing he had ever done. He agonized in the garden. He perspired blood because of the stress and the strain of that prayer. And as he got up, he looked into the eyes of one who was his friend. One who would betray him with a kiss. That friend had gathered with his rivals, political and religious rivals, to do him in. They led him down the Mount of Olives and they brought him to the house of the high priest. The Bible tells us that at daybreak, around six in the morning, when day came, his rivals had planned an illegal trial of religious leaders brought together to confirm his guilt. But the Jewish religious council could not pronounce his death, and so they had to bring him to the Roman authorities. So they brought him to Pilate the governor for his approval. And Pilate was not willing to have Jesus die. And so he bounced him off to another man, a local ruler called Herod, who refused and sent him back to Jesus. In between, Jesus was beaten illegally. He was abused and scorned and mocked by the soldiers. And And the entire establishment, the entire society turned its back on him. After Pilate agreed, To condemn him, he was led in a parade of humiliation, bearing his cross as he went to this place, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And Mark chapter 15 tells us that he was crucified at about 9 a.m. on Good Friday morning. Till noon. And at noon, it was now the sixth hour. How do we know that these events are true? Perhaps today you are. A visitor in the church and someone's kindly invited you and you've heard these events and, and, and it's, it's an interesting story it's an interesting series of events the gospel of luke captures factual times and places for us to understand that these are not just in, these are not just mythical claims but they are claims based in fact and history it's almost as if you turned up at the funeral and as you visited your friend your friend said to you the hospital, uh, the hospital called, and, and so-and-so responded at about 11. And, and we got there at about 11.10. And then my other relative arrived about 20 minutes later, and we went to the third floor. And, and we were there for about an hour. We waited for an hour. And then they told us a second time what had happened. And then another hour goes by. That's the kind of record of detail that you're reading in Luke 22 and 23. And you see some of this information that's captured there about the Mount of Olives where Jesus often went, that an hour's interval passed in chapter, two, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 66, that there was a place called the Skull, which actually was where criminals were put to death. These are factual times and places in memory, and historians make a huge argument that you can trust the reliability of these facts. In addition, the other thing Luke captures in this account are real persons, office holders of government and historical events. In the text that we have just read, we've heard about a man called Herod, Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee. And in the British Museum, right today, you can go and see the coins that bear his name. They speak of the Roman governor, Pilate. And in November last year, Historians believe, archaeologists believe, that we've, we found a ring that indicates that Pil- of who Pilate is and his title. Friends, these are persons, office holders, and historical events that are not mythical. They are factual. And perhaps the most clear evidence that this is a historical event are twofold. The first, the darkness that went over the night. The darkness that went over the day. Now, when I read this text for myself many years ago as a teenager, I thought, how is it possible that the sky went dark in the middle of the day? And as I grew as a Christian, I realized lots of other people smarter than me have looked at this. Uh, And and on, on the screen before you, I just put three, just some, three extra biblical sources. That means these are not sources from the Bible. They are historical sources from Greek historians. A man called Phallus, writing in the the 6th century, Phlegon in the 2nd century, and Africanus in the 3rd century. And all of them record on the day of Passover a solar eclipse. Some speculate that this was the event mentioned in Scripture. But the record is there outside of the Scriptures. The other thing that convinces me that this text is not a myth, it's not just some... Uh, some religious abstraction that I'm supposed to meditate on. The other thing that convinces me of that is the historical nature of crucifixion. Now, I'm going to read a very long quote. It's very long, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time. That is so long. But after I've read it, you'll know why. Crucifixion was the most horrendous and despicable and disgusting and distasteful way to die. The Romans who executed people with crucifixion, they tended not to crucify their own citizens and they preferred to behead them. They reserved crucifixion for the most heinous of crimes and criminals. It was altogether so horrifying that we invented a word to describe what crucifixion meant. The word is excruciating, which literally means from the cross. For the most part, it was for men who were crucified, and they were crucified face-forward. Sometimes men were even crucified at eye level, so that those who would want to mock them and jeer at them and spit at them and make sport of them could look right in their eye to increase their torment. And what we know was that men were crucified outward in this way to disgrace them. On a very rare occasion, a woman was also crucified. But when they crucified a woman, it was customary to turn her around and have her face the cross, because even the Romans could not look into the face of a woman undergoing the excruciating pain of crucifixion. And what made death by crucifixion so excruciatingly painful is that it was painful and slow death by asphyxiation, which is suffocation. The medical professionals tell us that when someone is crucified, essentially their body weight causes them to slump and slouch. The result is that they strain to fill up their lungs with air. And as they weaken, they slowly suffocate to death as they choke on their own blood or their vomit or their sweat and their tears. They choke and their lungs strain to gather air and exhale. Sometimes they would pass in and out of consciousness. This would mean that someone would remain on the cross for days, baking in the sun during the day, freezing in the cold at night, dehydrated, a body traumatized, with blood with blood, sweating profusely as the body went into shock. Invariably, what occurred is that such men would want to end their agony and to simply die and to put an end to their disgrace and shame. They would intentionally slouch on the cross, lose their breath, and die. And so to ensure that their cruelty continued for as long as possible, the sadists of the day built a little seat and nailed it to the cross under the man's buttocks so that he would be forced to remain upright and suffer for as long as possible. The Bible tells us that about Jesus, they scourged him, which is a little statement. But from history, we know what scourging is. A professional executioner would take a handle with straps of leather proceeding from it, and at the end was a metal ball that would beat the flesh of the man and tenderize it as you might a steak in preparation for grilling. And in addition to that, there were hooks attached to the end of the pieces of leather. leather. And those hooks were made of bone or metal. They would gather into the man's flesh, into his neck, and his back, his shoulders, his buttocks, his legs, and he would be stretched out for maximum capacity to gather all of the flesh off his back. And the bloody, disfigured, appalling Jesus was given his cross to bear. It was a recycled, used cross it had been used for the execution of other men it was covered in blood and their feces and their urine and it was on his bare back the cross would have weighed about a hundred pounds rough hewed timber with splinters and edges and Jesus' back with the bones and muscles exposed bare bore bore that weight and though he was strong and healthy he needed help Perhaps what is most astonishing about crucifixion is that it was not done in obscurity, off in a corner in a private place. This was done publicly in a very open, highly trafficked area. It would have been like you going to the supermarket on a Monday and seeing a large crowd in the parking lot and wondering, and, and wondering what's going on. And you go there and you see that there's a man there, and he's been crucified in the parking lot at the supermarket. And all the drunks and all the deadbeats, without anything else to do, gather to make fun of him. And then let's say you come back on Tuesday, and he's still there, and you're back on Wednesday, and he's still there, And maybe you're back on Thursday and finally he's dead. And then you take that body and you throw it into the dumpster. And that is exactly how it happened. End quote. Friends, you wear that, ladies, some of us, you wear that on your neck. You wear the cross on your neck. The cross was a symbol of shame. And the clearest argument that no one would have made this up was that no one would have, anything, would have wanted to do anything with, the, with crucifixion at all. And you would certainly not have the founder of your religion crucified. It would be an instant way to be discredited. Friends, I'm not sure who, who really came tonight. I see friends I know, I see some I don't know but maybe you came in tonight as a visitor, and maybe you came in as a skeptic. Or maybe you came in as a Christian with questions that you have long had, and your main question tonight is, is this really true? Why would it be written this way if it were not true? Why would anyone be crucified? And surely the greater question that we need to look at tonight is that with this man hanging on the cross and the sky going dark, why did it go dark? What was happening? Of all the crucifixions in the world that have ever taken place, why did the sky go dark over this man's death? The book of Amos tells us that the sky went dark because God made it dark. And God made it dark because God mourned His own Son. All the songs we've sang tonight are in the minor key. Those are songs of lamentation. Those are songs that are appropriate for today because they tell us that today, though a good Friday, was the worst day ever. And it was the worst day for Jesus. It was now the sixth hour, and the sky went dark between the sixth and the ninth hour. Mark chapter 15 tells us that there was another reason why it went dark. And the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, not only was Jesus abandoned by his friends, by the establishment, by the government that gave him rights as a citizen. Jesus was ultimately abandoned by God. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Jesus, when he was on the cross, was cursed. And Paul tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. What does it mean that God cursed Jesus? The late late R.C. Sproul uh, uses this really great analogy. Some of us maybe have heard of this ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6. Perhaps you know it well. The Lord bless you and keep you. We say this to each other at the end of the service. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His countenance toward you and give you peace. And we say this at the end of the service as a way of saying that as we gather in the name of Jesus, now we go out blessed blessed on the cross. God was saying to Jesus the reverse. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment with no grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Jesus Christ, was a for us. The Bible tells us that at the moment that that darkness came upon the land, the temple veil was torn in two, in verse 45. You see, the people of God gathered every year at the temple. That was where they came to meet with Him, where they came to offer their praise and their worship to Him. And the temple was designed in such a way that the, the innermost part could only be accessed once a year. And between that innermost part and the section outside, the holy place and the holy, there was a, there was a huge temple, temple, veil that split the temple in half. This was not a small curtain. And the word veil can, can be misleading. It was a 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, three inch thick piece of cloth or layers of cloth that separated the holy place from the most holy place, such that when the priests went into the holy place to do do their work, they would never be able to go into the most holy place. And as that darkness fell on the land, that temple veil was split from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. What did it mean? That temple veil being split tells us the reason why Jesus put himself there. So that in that moment, as that veil was split, we would now be able to access God in the innermost place, a place that that Israelites would have never been able to go. But Jesus, as in that darkness, as that veil was split, he was telling us, God was telling us that we now have that kind of access, that we can go to God in ways that we have never gone to him before. And that's the privilege that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus. Not only did that darkness fall upon Him so that it would not fall upon us, but that excess comes to us because it was denied Him. The next verse tells us that Jesus called out in a loud voice, which was really a scream. And what did He scream? You know, everything in history tells us that when a man is on the cross, he loses strength. And towards the end of his life, he has little strength. And he whispers. And a man might occasionally just let out a, a little whimper. But not so Jesus Christ, who was in control of himself all the way to the end. And after enduring the cross, what did he, what did he scream? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Jesus Christ was strong at his death. Even there, at that moment, at the end of his life, all his strength and his energy was focused on God and what God had called him to do. In that work of splitting the temple veil that that we would have access to God, Jesus was absolutely clear about the work that he had come to do. And he never forgot what he was there to achieve. The New Testament writers tell us that with this kind of example, we ought to think about how we suffer as Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 4, the Apostle Peter, thinking of his friend who died, says to his, his, uh, his church, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And in chapter 4 of that letter, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful Creator while doing good. These are instructions for us as Christians who bear the name of Jesus, not because we are told to be so generous and big-hearted, but simply because that was our Savior's experience. As on the cross, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Without any irritation or aggression towards those who had hurt him, he simply entrusted himself to God. No wonder then, the Roman centurion that stood at the foot of the cross said, surely this was an innocent man. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? that someone standing at the foot of the cross this entire time, watching Jesus suffer, having no preacher to explain to him, having no Bible to record theology or doctrine for him, just standing at the cross, this man would look at Jesus and the way he acts and say, surely this man was innocent. You see, the centurion was able to understand that on Good Friday, The worst things happened to the best man in what must have been the most confusing day for him. But we are not confused, are we? We are clear about why Jesus died. Jesus died for us. And for all who would trust in him, he would say, this work that I do, I extend to you. The sin that was on Jesus that day, the sin of all the world, for all sin, past, present, and future, was not his own. It was yours, and it was mine. All the sin of our lives, all the corruption and wickedness of our heart was poured out on him. We sang this hymn just now. I don't know whether you heard it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Friends, the only way we can understand Good Friday rightly is if in this moment, in this moment, we understand that it was our sin that held him there. Where I was cruel and harsh, Jesus has always been gentle and kind. Whereas I am spiteful and self-centered, Jesus always put his Father's interests and will first. How can we be hard-hearted against one so gracious? If you stood next to that centurion, what would you say? Would you say surely this was an innocent man because you know that those sins that put him there were yours? Or perhaps you would be like the crowds who seeing this scene and having gathered for a spectacle, which by the way are are heavy words, aren't they? That these crowds had churched, they had assembled together they had come together for the purpose of a spectacle. Do you know what that means? They had come to watch a show. And they had come to see this man suffer and see how, at the end of his life, let's see how he goes. It's the end of a dynasty, ha ha ha. And so we are here to watch. And what did they do as they left? They went home, beating their breasts. Because they, like the centurion, and perhaps like many of us right now, are clear that Jesus did not die for his own sin. The day that Jesus died, he died for the sins of others. Verse 49 tells us that there was one more group of people there at the cross that day, in that dark afternoon. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee Those who had followed him for his whole career, they stood at a distance watching these things. Friends, I wonder how they felt that night, that day, as they watched their Savior, they watched their Lord hanging there, feeling the complete defeat and the complete devastation of all of their hopes. The next chapter, actually, we learn about two disciples who share some of their disappointment. And they say this in expression of their smashed hopes. This is what they say in Luke 24. And they say this to Jesus when he's resurrected. They say, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, uh, the one they were speaking to, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Friends, do you hear the disappointment in their voice? The followers of Jesus had seen him turn water into wine, heal the sick, make unlimited bread and fish, cast out demons, raise the dead. But as they stood there, watching the limp body of their Saviour, no more hopes. How about Mary, his mother? The silence of Mary at the cross is stunning to us because she knew more than anyone else, she knew that her son was virgin-born. She knew that her son had come with an angel's word. But there on the cross as she watched him dying and when he breathed his last breath, what was her thought? I don't exactly know. But total despair I imagine, might have crept into the heart. And I wonder if in this hall right now, any one of you feels the same way about something else in your life. Perhaps in this season of your life, you feel that just completely defeated by something, perhaps something that you'd hoped for just not come through, a promotion that you had aspired towards given to someone else, a plan that you had conceived that fell through, a bad report about your health? As I've been thinking about this text, I've told myself on Good Friday, don't move to Easter so fast, Caleb. Okay, Stop there and remember the disciples of Jesus and remember how they must have despaired. Because life in this world is so often moments of despair, isn't it? I wonder if any of you feel that way right now about particular challenges. That you have friends. Three days later, hope is coming, but at that moment they didn't know it, and they stood at a distance watching these things. As we draw this sermon and this message to a close, it ends with Jesus dying, and he is put in the tomb, and that tomb is sealed, and no one expects hope to come. The Bible is clear to us that the disciples of Jesus, they didn't know that he was going to, they didn't really know, they were told, but they didn't know that he was going to come back. And perhaps your Christian life is very much like that. If so, stand here with the disciples in a moment of quiet contemplation that your Jesus is dead. dead. He's dead. And there's no more life in his body. As they take Jesus down from the cross and he's limp and he's lifeless. There's just one question to ask. Who is this man to you? What does he mean to you? At the beginning of this sermon, I talked about Salvador Dali, a great painter, and that Picture of the cross that he painted that had no blood in it. It had no relationship to him. Who was Jesus to Salvador Dali? Just a subject to be painted? Just a man to learn about? Just a famous figure to emulate? Just a religious teacher to learn from? And for us today, friends, Christian or not, This question we must answer. Who is Jesus to you? What does his dead body mean to you? Three days later, that body will not be dead. And his body will not be in Jerusalem. But in these moments, all we have is silence. Perhaps you've come in tonight, and you've come in, because someone asked you to come and you have doubts about the Christian faith. Bring those doubts and look at Jesus. Ask him to make himself known to you as a true and living God, or perhaps he's just a corpse. Ask him, let him speak to you. Let him show you that he lives. Or perhaps you've come in tonight and you're despairing very much like the disciples. Remind yourself that you are not alone. But at the foot of the cross, all the disciples was, were despairing. But hope would come. But for all of us, as we look at the cross, surely we must see our sin. Earlier in the service, we also sang, you who, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here, on the cross, may gauge its evil rightly. Here, its worth may estimate. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to prepare to be reminded that Jesus Christ and his death are for the forgiveness of our sins, and so they are. But in these moments, would you bring those sins before him and remind yourself of why he died, why that blood had to be shed, why that body had to be broken. Because until that happens, we're just like Salvador Dali. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I think I've read before here, is a great way to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And the question asks, How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all His gifts? This is the answer. First, As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was His body offered for me and His blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does He Himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with His crucified body and shed blood. Let's prepare to take the Lord's Supper.